Well, listen, uh, I want to transition in, uh, to the topic that I want to speak to you about. I've entitled it Missions Intelligence, Shepherding Missionaries. And the reason I chose the term uh, missions intelligence really is I believe and am convinced that we have to raise the, uh, the missions IQ of most pastors and leaders. If you're going to lead the church to do exactly what Dave talked about, then you've got to raise your game. You've got to invest the time and energy to educate and equip yourself as to what are the realities of missions, what are the theological issues in missions. If you're going to shepherd missionaries, how are you prepared to advise and counsel them? They're under your oversight uh, as leaders in your church as you send them out. How are you going to equip them and counsel them? Maybe they want to go into Bible translation work. Well, do you know what the, the philosophies of translation are of the major mission agencies that do translation work? How are you going to help them select a mission agency? How are you going to help them to think through and work through the philosophical issues that they're going to encounter on the mission field? Listen, something's got to change. We cannot just send people blindly to the mission field. Uh, we can't absolve ourselves of the responsibility to do that in ignorance. We've got to raise our intelligence quotient uh, with regard to what's going on in missions. Well, what I want to talk to you about, and I'm going to try to be super practical today, um, is to, to help you understand the challenge you're facing in your church to actually mature your missions program. Listen, uh, leaders do one specific thing. They solve problems. And if you don't know what the problem is, you can't solve it. And so what I'm going to try to do is just give you a perspective, beginning first with history and then reference scripture as to what the problem is in the church as it relates to their missions programs and what we need to do uh, to correct that. Later, you hear a lot of practical suggestions uh, uh, from the other speakers, but I want to give you this bigger context. And it's something that I've wrestled with my entire life, particularly teaching missions and trying to mobilize uh, stronger missions endeavors in local churches. When we think about uh, the reality of missions in the local church, the fact is many of us have defaulted our responsibility to missionary and sending agencies. This has been the historic reality in the North American church. And I want you to understand exactly how that has transpired. And if we're going to recover our role of leadership through the church, then we have to understand how we got to where we're at. When you think of uh, missionary societies or mission agencies, you need to understand uh, by going back and looking at uh, the father of the modern missions movement, William Carey, who really launched uh, one of the first denominational sending agencies. Um, William Carey uh, greatly convicted that he needed to give his life to missions, living in England at that time, raised in a small village, found himself eventually uh, convinced that he needed to mobilize uh, churches to support the mission's cause. He actually founded an organization uh, that was entitled the Particular Baptist Missionary Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to the Heathen. And, of course, he's famous for that great sermon uh, related to that title. And so he decided if he was going to preach missions and be obedient to go to the mission field, he was going to have to challenge the church uh, to make a commitment to invest and support not only his work but others he was calling to obedience. Back then at that time in England, uh, the reality was uh, men who lived in small villages uh, didn't have a lot of access to financial resources to actually get on a ship and sail around the world to, to fulfill the call into missions work. And this was a challenge that Carey faced. At that time, a uh, distinction would be made between a village and a hamlet. Uh, a hamlet was a collection of people who lived in a rural setting, and the only distinction between a village and a hamlet was that a village had a church. And so Carey had the vision of mobilizing these village churches to come together and collectively to support missionaries to go to the field. And this came out of his preaching ministry and his passion. So here was a leader who was trying to solve a problem. And he realized he needed to solve an economic problem by way of support. 
And so in launching the particular Baptist uh, missionary society, he set a model and a precedent that many other denominations would follow eventually. Over the years, uh, as more and more missionaries went out, we begin to watch a pattern of missions develop. Not only the proliferation of mission societies to support them, but we saw a particular pattern of advancement uh, of the missionary cause. At this point, colonization, particularly Great Britain, had colonies around the world. And the first point uh, of landing or impact for many missionaries was in a port city. And so when you look at the opportunity that uh, people had because of colonization, there were trade companies and things like that established in port cities. These missionaries would come from countries like Britain, eventually America, and would land in those developed locations, those port cities. And so the first era of modern missions really was focused on evangelization in those uh, key trade communities. A hundred years later, we saw the advance of missions work through mission organizations through the leadership of men like Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, who founded China Inland Missions, really championed the cause of moving from the port cities into the interior of the countries where there were those who were unreached and the church had not really been extended. And so in this area, in the late 1800s and following, we saw a proliferation of interior mission agencies, not only China Inland Mission, but you might recall uh, African Inland Missions or Sudan Interior Missions. They all had this focus of ministry of moving from the exteriors into the interior of the ministry or into the country. But by the end of post, uh, I'm sorry, the end of World War II, post-World War II, <clears throat> We begin to see a change in emphasis in the missionary societies. Their emphasis now was on specialization, particular kinds of work and ministry that you would do. As often as the case, if you go back and study missions history, there is a surge following a major world war or altercation where men who served in that war have an interest to go back and evangelize and, and to establish churches among the national people that they saw in those theaters of war. This has always been true. It's happening today. Those who fought in the Middle East uh, have really uh, become very active in evangelistic, uh, evangelistic efforts in the Middle East and so forth, and, and I think we should expect that. This is a historic pattern. But by the time of uh, the end of World War II, you had a lot of men who'd been trained. Uh, it might be uh, trained in radio and broadcasting, and so we saw uh, the origination of, of ministries that specialize in radio, such as Far East Broadcasting, which still operates today and have actually become a great partner with us uh, in ministry. Or Trans World Radio. Or those who are trained in aviation uh, launched uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which uh, really mobilized missionaries to go into unreached people groups in remote areas and fly those small, small planes uh, in landing strips that they had cut the trees down to build. Many of us grew up with stories of those kinds of missionaries, didn't we? Uh, those pioneer missionaries working in these areas. And, of course, radio and technology was important because during the Cold War, we didn't have direct access into a lot of closed countries, so whether behind the Iron Curtain or the Bamboo Curtain. Well, with the prolifer uh, excuse me, proliferation of, of missionary societies, by the 1990s, there were over 2,000 missionary agencies in North America. And because of their skills that they developed by way of pre-field training, language learning, expertise in uh, things like medical missions and so forth, the local church really came to sense no direct responsibility or obligation to the care of missionaries. Nor did most local churches, numbering 200, 300, 500 people, feel that they had the resources uh, to really take a leadership role in missions. What was also happening at this time was uh, because of the duration of, of time necessary to get to the mission field uh, uh, during this historic period, most terms, traditional terms for missionaries, were defined in this way, four years on and one year off, meaning that missionaries would go for a term of four years. This was very standard across all mission organizations. Four years on, do their missionary work, and then return for a year back to the States to be on what we call furlough or deputation 
uh, but furlough particularly in the sense of having to renew the support levels of their donors and sponsors back in churches uh, in North America. My father-in-law was a missionary uh, to Tasmania, Australia, and I think he represents what was the common practice. He was born in Illinois, but after getting out of the Navy, he'd been stationed in San Diego. So in being called to be a church planter in Tasmania, Australia, he simply took out the map, put a dot in San Diego and a dot uh, in Illinois in his hometown, and just drew a line and tried to find every Baptist church along that line that he could stop at and make his missionary presentation. Now, as a kid, I remember sitting through those missionary presentations. I didn't know these people. I didn't know what they were doing. I saw some interesting pictures and heard some interesting stories, but I wasn't personally endeared to them. Matter of fact, I wasn't real excited about much of what they were doing in missions and began to even not look forward to those kinds of presentations. I repented later. But I remember talking to my father-in-law, and as I said, I think he illustrates so many other missionaries uh, during that era. Uh, they had over 30 churches that were part of their sending base. And so this was the norm, really, since William Carey launched the mission societies up until uh, really uh, the late 1900s, where missionaries would have to come back. It would take an entire year to drive that circuit, to stop, to eat another lasagna or chicken dinner, You know, make your presentation, pull out your slides, right? Pass out your prayer cards and hope that in the end that church might pick you up by way of support. And the support often was in terms of maybe $25, $50, $75 a month. So let me ask you a question. How well cared for can you be as a missionary by 30 different local churches, many of which don't even know you other than the missionary presentation you made four years ago? So what happened in that area is very few churches felt any personal responsibility or obligation to care for their missionaries. And again, that reinforced the default to the missionary society. What was missing in this area was a responsibility on the part of the church to exercise uh, two of its duties in leadership. Fulfill their role by way of authority and oversight of their missionaries, and also fulfill their role by, by way of providing accountability, not just in a negative sense, by issuing reports, how many people did you baptize, how many people have you added to the church. That's not the kind of accountability I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of accountability where you know your missionaries, you know how they're doing in their marriage and and in their family, you know what their struggles are in ministry, you care for them, you pray for them. Well, things begin to change. While there are different kinds of missionary sending agencies, some were denominational or some we called them faith uh, missionary agencies, as I said, there were over 2,000 by 1990, something began to change. One of the things that began to change was the short-term missions movement. All of some people from your church wanted to get on a plane and go and be a part of a short-term missions trip. It really began with our youth or our young people. They were encouraged by youth pastors or or at their Christian universities to be a part of short-term missions. And they began to return to your church, first asking for support and then asking to be sent out. And I remember this era very clearly. I was very actively involved in short-term missions and trying to counsel students in how to navigate their home churches when they would talk to pastors who just had no understanding, appreciation. They didn't know what to do with them. Their missions programs really had no category uh, for sending out their own missionaries. And these students were asking questions, what can we do to work with our pastors? We want to submit to their authority. We want to recognize and affirm that, but they don't know what to do with us. I began to recognize that, that, that we had a problem. And so churches in this era were being called upon to consider sending out their own people to the mission field. And many churches had no defined processes for sending their people to the mission field, let alone any measure of engagement by way of the leaders to think through critical issues in missions and counsel uh, these young people. And so something began to transpire within the church. It was really a, a reformation movement that began to take place. Many churches began to reexamine the role of the church in the sending process, and they began to, to, to find or make an effort to align their church's sending process with the New Testament model. 
The other dynamic at this time uh, that was affecting the leadership of the church was the return of many missionaries after fulfilling only one term on the field. There are a lot of people who were sent out and a lot of money that was raised. I mean, to get to a missionary to, feel, uh, to the field, to find a home, to get a car, to get their furniture uh, shipped and all those kinds of things, uh, today's dollars, you're talking sometimes fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000 to get a family set up in addition to their monthly support. And what we begin to see across uh, the horizon with evangelical missions is that a majority of missionaries never return to the field for a second term. And so the stewardship of the church, had, the church had a problem by way of, it, of how it was handling and investing its resources. I remember uh, a real seminal study that came out in 1997. It was authored by uh, a missionary named Jonathan Lewis. And this book was entitled Too Valuable to Lose, Exploring the Causes and Cures of Missionary Attrition. And in his study, he validated what many of us thought was the case. And he confirmed that 70% of evangelical missionaries did not return to the field for a second term. I remember at the time trying to do the math, trying to calculate if you took one family and the, the average investment it took to get them to the field in four years of support. And I knew the number of missionaries at that time, and I calculated that the U.S. church was investing over half a billion dollars in a failed missions endeavor. A half a billion dollars of investment with almost no return on that investment. And yet we just continue to send people out blindly. Pass the plate, get them. Thank God somebody wants to go to the mission field. We never say it that way, but that's what we thought. And we can check that off the list. And we fail to uphold our responsibility and our duty to shepherd those missionaries, to guide them. And I remember in Lewis's book, he reduced his entire study And his conclusion was this, where we have failed is in two regards, selection and training. Selection and training. We'll just send anybody to the mission field. Who knows if they're qualified? Who knows what the the state of their marriage or their family is? Who knows what they actually believe doctrinally, theologically? Pass the plate, have a commissioning service, and get them to the field. Let the mission agency deal with them. And then with regard to training, were these people who actually could effectively lead in the church. It's easy to get on a plane and say, I'm going to go be an evangelist or a church planter or do all these things. What evidence was there that they'd done that here? Where had they been equipped in the context of the local church to actually replicate that ministry overseas? And so churches begin to ask this question, what is the role of the church in the sending process? It doesn't take long, and we've heard evidence already of it today, to do a survey of New Testament texts which reveals an emphasis on the local church in providing the primary authority and accountability for the missionary. Easily taking a look at the book of Acts and just the example of Paul's relationship to the churches informs us and illustrates that it is the church who sends people out. If you look at Acts chapter 13, Verse 3, for instance, there, we see that it was the church in Antioch, and not just the church, it was the elders who took the responsibility for sending Paul and Barnabas out. They took that responsibility. We see later in chapter 14, verse 26, that they followed up with them. There was a reporting back to the church. There was accountability. And so we see just in these two passages the responsibility of the church to function by providing the authority, appropriate authority and accountability to missionaries. All throughout the book of Acts, of course, we see that reaffirmed. In Acts chapter 15, of course, uh, Paul and Barnabas um, come back through the church in Antioch and then are sent on uh, to the church of Jerusalem. And that great Jerusalem council that settled once and for all that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile um, was achieved there in Jerusalem. The term that's used in those texts for sending out is the Greek word propempo. And what it means is to help on one, help one on their journey with food, money, by organizing companions, means of travel, and etc. What the church did is they identified what are the needs, not just financial needs, physical needs, but also the spiritual and relational needs of these missionaries. And they determined that they were going to meet those needs in an ongoing fashion. This is a clear commitment of the church. 
And we see this repeated throughout the New Testament in a number of occasions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 15, 24. Titus 3, 13. These are just a few occasions where you see the use of the word propempo, where the church is fulfilling its duty and obligation to love and care and shepherd its missionaries. If I could, for the sake of time, just to summarize what is the duty and role of the church, I think we see three main emphasis in the New Testament. First of all, the New Testament church identified missionaries within their own body and sent them out. They identified missionaries within their own body and sent them out. I would say this is also the authentication of the missionary call. They didn't have people showing up at their door ready to show uh, a slideshow telling a church that they were called to the mission field. These were people who they were validated or their calling to ministry was verified under the authority of the pastors and elders. They were known entities. And so there was an authentication of the call. When they were sent out, everybody was in agreement. This is what the Lord has appointed you to do, and we stand with you. This is the issue of selection. This is the issue of selection that Jonathan Lewis pointed to was being neglected uh, at large within the evangelical church. The second thing that we see by way of the example of the New Testament church is they equipped potential missionaries within their own body. And this is the authentication of ministry. This is the training part. The church bore the responsibility. They didn't delegate that to a missions agency. Now, I do believe there's a place for mission agencies. I'm not anti-mission agency. But I will tell you, they're parachurch organizations. And many parachurch organizations have failed to abide by the definition of parachurch. What does para mean? Coming alongside the church. Sadly, many mission agencies cease to be church-centric, church-focused. And what we begin to see in this Reformation, starting in the late 80s into the early 1990s, where churches begin to ask the question, what is our duty and responsibility, is they begin to interface with mission agencies. Some agencies didn't like it. They become accustomed to be autonomous, being the authority, making decisions on the field, the field council of missionaries there, without no reporting back or engagement of elders in the home church. I watched over about a 10-year period this dynamic play itself out. The mission agencies that I think excelled and still thrive today and are faithful are those who upheld the word of God. They were committed to the authority of scripture. And when they saw that they weren't functioning in a biblical sense, many of them begin to change their practices and policies. And they recognize and affirm the role of local church leadership in the life of their missionaries. I can name a number of mission agencies who patiently went through that transition with local churches and took the secondary role. And I praise God for that. There are a lot of mission agencies who never did make that transition. And if I could be candid with you, uh, my observation at large, not just mission agencies, but paired church organizations uh, for the most part, often are not church-centric. And it it often begins because the leader was frustrated in the context of the church. So they went out and started their own gig, their own organization. Look, is working with the church an easy thing? No. Okay? Is there valid reasons for frustration? Absolutely. And when you have pastors who don't share a vision for outreach and evangelism and, and ministry, sometimes you feel forced to go out and do your own thing. We have got to fight to do it right and do it biblical. And that means that we have got to bring missions back under the authority of the church and then work with those organizations that affirm the priority of the church and are true to the definition of being parachurch. And and I could name several of them, and I rejoice in their faithfulness. So (laughs) not here. At least not on tape, okay? Uh, be glad to tell you afterwards. But when I work with missions and teach them to evaluate and select a mission agency, that's the first thing I ask them to look at. Actually, the first thing is I ask them to evaluate their doctrinal statement. Now, this is in my notes. This is for free. But what I would say to them is, listen, 
look at the mission agency and find out what their doctrinal statement is. But don't just take the statement that's put on their website or on their brochure. You need to probe and ask some questions. Ask this question. Does everybody who goes to this mission agency, are they required to agree with that doctrinal statement? I mean, you're a pastor in a church trying to help somebody get into an agency. It's fair to assume that everybody going out with that agency actually agrees with their doctrinal statement. Wrong. You can't make that assumption. People have got to do their homework. Do you know mission agencies make a distinction between agreeing with the doctrinal statement or affirming the doctrinal statement? People who affirm the doctrinal statement, what they're saying is, well, I have disagreements, but I'll go out with you and I'll, I'll recognize your doctrinal statement and I'll affirm that. Listen, I don't want to be a part of a church planning team with somebody who doesn't agree with me doctrinally. And this has led to the division of so many missionary teams because the mission agencies set them up for failure out of the gate. Find out what their position is on, on separation with, with other ministry partners who, um, you know, where will you partner with people who might have some charismatic tendencies? What's their philosophy? What's the mission agency actually suggests? You might find that they're actually within your mission agency. Please, guys, listen. If we're sending people to the mission field, we've got to protect them. We've got to help them do their homework. We've got to be intelligent in our approach to this. These are people's lives, and every one of us probably gave testimony of missionary friends who only got to the field to discover that they could not work with their teammates and within a matter of months had to divide and, and start a new work or even come home. What a tragedy because we've taken a very casual approach to our responsibility. Well, the third thing, sorry, I get a little animated. The third thing there uh, that we see in the New Testament by way of its example is that they supported the missionaries from within their own body. This is part of that sending out process of meeting their needs, and I would describe this as shepherding. They took on the responsibility to shepherd their missionaries. And so in this era, the emphasis began to shift as the church tried to answer this question, biblically, what is our responsibility? It began to shift from just sending anyone who was willing to be more selective and more invested. The determination that the church was responsible, not the mission agency, to provide ongoing accountability, financial support, pastoral care, and more informed prayer. And this is one of the exciting things that we watched change. Actually, I think this last matter of prayer, informed prayer, was most influenced by the development of the Internet and global phone access. I, mean, I remember getting a kid and you, you get this air postal missionary letter that was sharing prayer requests and it was already three months old. But what do you guys enjoy in your church? You put a missionary up on Skype or you put in your bulletin today's prayer request. They got a, a counseling issue or, or there's a personal need in their church. Your church knows it today. Aren't we blessed to, to take advantage of that kind of intimate communication and relationship with our missionaries? I remember uh, talking to my wife uh, when she came back to the States for the college. And it was true in my dorm as well. There was one payphone in the dorm. And we had to wait in line uh, to use it to call. And she said, I only ever got to call my parents once a month. I'd save up my change, and uh, I would call them when they were still in Australia once a month. And I got to talk to them maybe 15 or 20 minutes. I remember not long ago walking across the campus of the Master's College where there's a whole bunch of missionary kids going to school there, and they're sitting around the campus with their computers open just Skyping with their parents. You know, the opportunity for the family to stay connected and communicate Many of us know in that early area, a lot of MKs were sent away to boarding schools. Many of them never had close relationship with their parents. But these are wonderful opportunities within the family and within the body of Christ to enjoy communication and relationship. If you're not taking advantage of that kind of communication on a regular basis, uh, you need to. You need to know your missionaries. You need to, to walk with them. There's no excuse not to be engaged uh, in that fashion. Well, as I said, conservative mission agencies uh, responded by affirming the priority of the church and helped their missionaries work under the leadership of their local churches. At the same time, this is interesting to see what happened. The traditional model of furloughs that I described earlier, four years on and one year off, began to change. Since transportation was much more affordable, missionaries could come home more frequently to visit. This reduced their time away from ministry. Also, as churches begin to reduce the number of missionaries that they were supporting, $25, $50, $75 a month, 
listen, you go back to the foyer, right? And you saw the world map and all the prayer cards with yarn, kind of um, push pins. Uh, that's what I remember as a young boy. But again, church has said, no, if we're going to invest in our own people, we're going to invest to a greater extent. We're going to stand with them. Now, some churches were a little abrupt in the approach that they took to transition. This is my caution that I share with you. I didn't like that many churches just like that went out there and pulled off those prayer cards and sent a letter to missionaries and said, we're no longer going to support you. That really created a crisis for many missionaries, faithful missionaries. They hadn't done anything wrong, but churches pulled their support abruptly. That's not a loving approach to transition. You take your time, you honor those people, you love them, you figure out a transition plan. It might be two, three, four years. Some are going to retire. Uh, I've talked to a number of churches they are just waiting for some people to retire um, so that they can replace them on the field. Obviously, when, there's a, when you evaluate the situation, you find out there are people, they don't even hold to your doctrinal statement, or the kinds of work that they're doing aren't really making disciples, then you might have to make a more difficult and timely decision to make a transition. But we begin to watch this change, and as more churches supported fewer missionaries, but supported those missionaries to a greater extent, something really exciting happened. Not only did missionaries not have to leave their ministry on the field for a year. I mean, listen, if you're pastoring a church, would you like to leave your church for an entire year? Vulnerable to whoever comes and influences them? Of course not. Why would we ask our missionaries to do that? And so missionaries were able to stay on the field, stay in their, their ministries. Maybe they would come home every couple of years for six months, or maybe they would come home every year for a month, or, or whatever the model is. And now, you know, it varies. Uh, det- determination is how to best approach that uh, in counsel with elders and, and pastors. But what happened is when the missionaries did come home, they weren't driving from San Diego to Illinois, visiting all these churches. They anchored themselves in their home church. And something began to change in our vocabulary. We actually begin to talk about being a sending church. When you've got 30 churches, no one's taking the responsibility for sending you. But now when you're anchored in a home church, you identify yourself as the sending church. And you have, a, you have those duties of accountability, right, and authority. And so much good has happened uh, in this time period. And we're thankful for this change and this reformation. But my friends, there still exists a challenge that we all face, and it's one I want to name and make the effort to help you recognize, because if we're going to be leaders and solve problems, this is one that we have to solve. There still remains in the minds of most pastors a dichotomy in their own thinking that they somehow are called to either pastor a local church or be a missionary. I remember myself going to seminary and hearing the debate or at least discussions in the hallway between men saying, uh, I want to be a missionary, and some other guy saying, well, I want to be a local church pastor. And for too long in the church, and I'm talking about going back now for well over a 100 years, this dichotomy has existed in the minds of most pastors. When they make a determination that they're not going to be a missionary, they limit themselves and put themselves in this box that they define as being a local church church pastor. And as soon as they do that, they disengage from the duty and responsibility of advancing the Great Commission in, through their church, and to the nations. This has troubled me for for quite a while, and I've, I've done my best to try to analyze the problem and try to find out what are the things that have informed the creation of this false dichotomy in the mind of most pastors. The issue that we're wrestling with today of mobilizing pastors and elders to lead the mission's effort in their church has to be solved in the hearts and minds of pastors. So how do we get where we're at? The reality is that most pastors in America graduate from Bible colleges and seminaries with a clear division in their thinking as to their own personal role in missions. Most men felt compelled to decide between going uh, into local church ministry or going into missionary work. And I want to suggest to you that this dichotomy can lead to a faulty ecclesiology. And we've been living in in too many places with a faulty ecclesiology. And what we're trying to do today is trying to reconcile this. Now, what were the influences that led to seminary graduates for decades having this false dichotomy? Well, some of the influences can be traced back all the way to the time of the Reformation. 
If you go back and study the classical reformers, Luther and Calvin and, and others, you'll see in their writings that there was a strong commitment to the gospel. No doubt about it. What were they fighting for? The doctrine of justification, for instance, right? But there was also in their writings uh, a real clarity with regard to the advancement of the gospel. And it's been wrongly assumed that the reformers were not committed to missions. But the fact is they were men of their own time in their own context, and they had to prioritize which battles they were going to fight. And the fact is that the classic reformers chose to address the issue of soteriology, thankfully, but many of them still held on to the practice of infant baptism. And this had some limiting uh, factors and implications. By holding on to infant baptism and focusing on reform within the Catholic Church, they did not emphasize the need to plant or establish new churches. Okay? Their goal was to bring the Reformation within the Catholic Church. Now, this makes sense if you put yourself back in the historical context, because the word Catholic, first of all, means what? Do you know? Universal, right? And the Catholic Church had been faithful in missionary endeavors all through the Middle Ages, and they had extended the scope of influence and established the Catholic Church throughout the known world, their missionary efforts. So there wasn't a sense of need to go out and to plant more churches on the part of the classic reformers if they were going to bring reform internally on the doctrine of soteriology and particularly justification. So their focus was internal. But what began to change was with the radical reformers and particularly the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists rejected infant baptism. And they said the church has to be comprised of people who are truly converted, people who are of age, uh, primarily adults, who have made a profession of faith. And the act of baptism illustrates the transformation of what God's done in their life. And so they emphasize the significance of believers' baptism. The fact was, because they rejected infant baptism, they were put out of the state church or the Catholic church. That prompted the Anabaptists to begin to wrestle with the issue of planting biblical churches comprised of baptized believers. And you can trace the modern missions movement back to the, the greatest emphasis of the Anabaptists in their efforts to plant biblical churches. I remember one time having a conversation uh, with, with John over lunch, and I was inspired by a seminary professor to study the Anabaptists, and particularly uh, their work in missions. And as I began to read them, I became compelled with their view of the church and understanding the lordship of Christ and their definition of discipleship. And I thought, I agree with this, but I don't remember having a conversation about the Anabaptists with too many other people. And I was sharing this with John. He says, well, well, Mark, you understand, we hold to a reformed soteriology, but an Anabaptist ecclesiology. And I had to confess, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. And as I began to study that and begin to realize the, the missions movement that was birthed out of their commitment to plant biblical churches, I became inspired to learn more about their commitment. And if you go back and trace the modern missions movement, what you will find it was their influence that eventually led to movements like the Moravian Missionary Movement or the Brethren Missionary Movement and then eventually into the Baptist Missions Movement that we're more familiar with. This is a rich and wonderful strain of church history that many of us need to, dis to discover. Here's where the dichotomy, though, begins to originate. If you look at formal theological education and the publication of theological resources historically, that strain can be traced back to the classic reformers. And that means that their approach to teaching systematic theology often did not have an emphasis on missions or the advancement of the Great Commission uh, in the way that we're talking about today. And it is true today in many schools that we still abide by that very classic formal curriculum in the way that we teach theology. I was inspired by several seminary professors to go back and to actually begin to study a theology of missions. And the person who was, I think, the greatest champion of that was John himself 
and listening to his preaching. Because I would hear in his preaching and understanding when he would work through a text that that connects connected, as Dave said, to the greater flow of redemptive history. And so I begin to read books on the doctrine and theology of missions. And I begin to see the flow from Genesis to Revelation. I begin to see that that immediately on the heels of the fall, you see what theologians refer to there in the curse as the proto-evangel. The promise there of the seed of the woman who eventually, what would crush Satan and have victory over him. God immediately provides a solution for the effect of the fall. Or you come to Genesis chapter 12, don't you? And you understand the Abrahamic covenant and what God was going to do through the nation of Israel to all the families of the earth. Or you come to Exodus chapter 19, there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and you begin to see that, that God's words to Moses, to, to the people he's just rescued out of slavery, and is going to eventually take them into the promised land. He says to them in, in verse 6, you are to be to me a what? A kingdom of priests and a holy people. What's the work and role of a priest? They're to function as mediators. Well, if the entire nation of Israel is to function in a mediatorial role, to whom are they to function towards? The Gentile nations. And you understand why then the flow of the Old Testament where God uh, divides the kingdom because of idolatry. How can people stand for Jehovah before the Gentile nations when they bow the knee to Baal? See, the entire Old Testament begins to make sense. They're not isolated Sunday school stories that we tell with flanagraph figures or whatever form that they use today. There's a flow and connection. God's purpose has always been the same. And then you come to Christ, who's the culmination of the promise of a Messiah for all peoples. And you study the life of Christ. And you watch the cross-cultural encounters of Christ. Why does he say to a centurion, I've never found greater faith in Israel than in this man, Jew or Gentile? said Gentile. Why were the Jews outraged with Christ? Yeah, yeah, he confronted the Pharisees. He didn't fulfill their expectations of Messiah, but repeated in his, in his preaching ministry, he confronted the Jews in their ethnic pride. And he says, I came to be a Messiah for all people. And he keeps pointing to Gentiles. Why is Christ doing that? Because he's, he's realizing that he came to be king of all men, savior of People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You move then into the Great Commission passage, and it's totally consistent with God's plan. And you see the unfolding that, as Dave said, in the book of Acts and all the epistles. And it makes sense. And then you come to the book of Revelation. And obviously in chapter 5 and chapter 7, we see that there are going to be those surrounding the throne of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it doesn't stop there. All the way to chapter 21 and 22. I love chapter 22. Or it talks about the tree of life one day that we will all behold. And it says that the leaves on the tree of life were what? For the healing of the nations. What is the tree of life? It represents eternal life. What is the healing God's talking about? He's talking about spiritual healing and redemption. My friends, how can you be a pastor and preach God's word and not make the connections that doesn't mean you have to get up and just preach a sermon on missions every day. And Dave helped us just preach expositionally. Work right through a book, but where the, connect the dots for your people. Lift their eyes up to the scope of what God's doing throughout history. When you do that, the culture of your church is going to mature. And they're going to ask and answer, what should we do to fulfill God's call in our life as a church? It begins here in the pulpit. Too many of our men graduate, even as Dave illustrated, from seminaries having no clue about theology of missions or the flow of redemptive history. And that means when they come to a New Testament epistle, as he suggested, then they interpret it in a very localized way just for the application to their own congregation and not understanding that what God is doing in the local church is part of what he's doing through the church around the world. Well, when you understand that and your people understand that, I got to tell you, they start asking more loving and thoughtful questions about what they should do to care for their missionaries. Okay, they own the vision. They stand with them in a much more powerful and personal way. Well, what do we need to do to correct the challenge? We need to educate ourselves. We need to raise our missions IQ. We have to go back to school. If you've never read a Theology of Missions book, 
You need to read one. Okay? If you're responsible directly giving oversight to the missions program, you need to understand what the trends are in missions. What are the, the theological issues in missions that your missionaries are going to face? You don't have to become the expert on all things, but you better not be totally ignorant because you've been derelict in applying yourself to study these issues. And frankly, the evangelical church is being outpaced by the influences of liberalism, the charismatic movement, because what's being pumped out by the dominant seminaries that have an emphasis in missions, these are schools that do not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And they're graduating people who are then going in, not just to the mission field, but over time become leaders in their mission organizations. And those of us who have a high view of God's word, it's time to stand up and we need to take a stance and we need to equip ourselves and our missionaries to stand for the truth. One of the things that happens when a pastor has this dichotomy in their mind is they don't feel competent and they don't feel their investment in missions is personal. So what they do is they delegate that responsibility to a missions committee. Or maybe they hire a missions pastor, which is a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. But when they do that, to delegate that, to kind of get that off their plate, and there's no sense of personal responsibility as a leader of the church to engage and, and to, to teach their people, then that missions elder or pastor or that committee often goes about their work with great frustration. But more than the frustration, they go about their work in isolation. And that means if they're not informed, they start making commitments on behalf of your church to, to support and be involved in missions work that doesn't align with what's being preached on Sunday morning. And this is unfortunately the case in too many of our own churches. Maybe these missionaries are not preaching heresy, but we have this very eclectic set of missions commitments, and we don't know what to do with them. But we know that probably half of them really aren't accomplishing what we believe needs to be accomplished. Well, it's going to take some effort to evaluate your situation, to teach and train your people to think biblically about missions, and then eventually begin to make those transitions and make decisions that over time will strengthen your missions program. Just to help you with this, uh, there's an article that influenced my thinking by the name, uh, by a gentleman by the name of Melbourne Cuthbert. It's a great name. And the book is entitled The Church and Missions. And particularly in his chapter uh, that he titles The Pastor and World Missions, he names these things a local pastor should be committed to. Let me just mention them quickly to you. Number one, the pastor should seek to create interest and enthusiasm for world missions among his people. And he goes on to give a list of examples of how to do that, certainly teaching, but also uh, calling uh, his people in church to read missionary biographies or missionary material or to subscribe to, to newsletters, get educated on missions. He also invites missionary speakers uh, to come and to not just speak on a mission Sunday, but to be a part of the life of the church. Home Bible studies, fellowship groups, Sunday school classes. He invites them into elders meetings and they dialogue and they, they partner in ministry. Number two, the pastor should generate prayer support and interest in missions in general, and specifically for the missionaries supported by the church. He leads the prayer endeavor for missions. He models that in meetings with elders from the pulpit. He can do that, of course, by Skyping, getting prayer requests, reading missionary letters, excerpts, putting things in the bulletin. There's a lot that he can do. Number three, as we've talked about already, the pastor's preaching should reflect God's heart for missions. Number four, the pastor should recruit candidates for missionary service from among his own congregation. That means he's watching for people in his church who are gifted and has a commitment to send the very best to the mission field. Number five, the pastor should seek to raise as much money as possible for missions. Let me tell you an insight. A lot of guys I've talked to are concerned. Hey, managing a church budget is not an easy thing, right? There's a lot of expenses and needs. But there's a tendency to think if we invest more in missions, then that's going to take away money from other things. I was talking to a guy wrestling with this. We need a youth pastor. Do we hire a youth pastor or do we support another missionary? 
What I've seen in churches over the years is those who continue to increase their missionary giving see the overall giving in their church increase. Okay? Because their people are committed to advancing the truth and the gospel, and God blesses them. Don't be afraid to increase your missionary giving. All right. Number six, the pastor should direct the church in choosing the mission agencies and missionaries it supports. And I've already referenced that. Number seven, whenever possible, and you guys will like this one, the pastor should visit the countries where the missionaries serve. One of the things I like about TMAI, and particularly our Visiting Scholars program, is if you can help people engage their gifts and passions with missions, then get out of the way. And one of the ways you can get your pastor engaged in missions is let him use his gifts on the mission field. What's he gifted to do? To preach and to teach. We'll find the opportunities for him to do that. He'll come back and report about what God's doing. And then he'll find ways to lead the connection with that ministry. And the last thing uh, that he states in this article is this, and I think it's important. The pastor should consider the missionaries as colleagues in the ministry. I know some churches have taken this so seriously that they actually recognize their missionaries as on the pastoral staff. They're just serving overseas, but they view them that way. Well, a pastor who thinks this way and leads this way will lead his church to actually uh, excel with regard to their commitment to loving and shepherding missionaries. Well, I need to wrap up my time, but what we wanted to do here at this event was to give you some tools to think about going about the process of strengthening your missions program. What you have in your hand is a, is a manual that we put together just for today. You're the only ones that have it, but it's entitled How to Build an Effective Missions Program. It's a roadmap to think through these issues. It's not totally comprehensive, and so we included at the last page some recommended resources to read, some websites, places where there's more articles for pastors on missions. And this is a great thing to begin to do with your elders and your missions committee. TMAI is so committed to this that we're going to uh, begin launching a new blog on issues for missions so that we can get the best resources out to you and continue to help you grow your missions intelligence. Uh, so you can look forward to that. We hope in time to actually produce a curriculum that will be an alternative to the perspectives and world missions curriculum, which has been effectively used in churches. There are many good things in that curriculum, some things uh, we wouldn't hold to or agree to, and so we hope to provide an alternative to that that churches can use. There's a lot of things that we can do if we apply ourselves to solving the problem that the church faces today. And I just have to tell you uh, how much it means to me personally that you came out this afternoon to commit yourself to think through this issue. So I praise the Lord for you and your faithfulness. I hope in the years to come the Lord will use us in our generation to strengthen the commitment of the local church and missions.